Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open a Bible to John's Gospel. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 18. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there'll be a table of contents there in the front. It'll get you to the Gospel of John. If you're looking for the chapter, the chapters tend to be the big numbers. And the verses tend to be the smaller ones. And this morning we're going to be reading John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. So John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when Jesus had spoken these words, He's talking about the Olivet Discourse, John 14, 15, 16. John 17 was his high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So, if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that He had spoken. Of those whom you gave Me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name, by the way, as John is prone to do, give us details, his name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, 
for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas, if you remember, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, all our hope is in you. We pray that the word of God would come this morning not only in word, but in power, in saving grace, and in edifying mercy. By what we see of Christ, please arrest every heart this morning. Captivate us all by your glory. Give us so much joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, whenever we see a mugshot, we almost never see a radiant face. And I only say almost never because I did recently see a mugshot of a man who was arrested for going around and cutting off man buns. And his mugshot, he looked absolutely delighted with himself that he had done this. Like he was thrilled. You saw the mugshot and he was just like this. But besides him, the arrested are usually sullen and inglorious in appearance. And that's how we view them, too. We see the mugshot, we see the person in the mugshot, and in all sincerity, we're like, thank God society has been rescued from such an inglorious creature. But then I thought this week, you know who might look the most sullen and inglorious in a mugshot? An innocent person. A person deeply troubled by being criminalized bound and broadcast for all to see, but all of it unjustly. A person who knew that they were in the right, who knew that they had gotten the wrong person, who knew nonetheless what they were losing by mere accusation, who knew life as they knew it was at best suspended. Right? I imagine they'd look fairly miserable in that mugshot. And yet, we come to the arrest of Jesus of Nazareth here this morning, and as we do, we find all of that and more. We not only find an arrested man, we find an innocent man. Indeed, we find a man who in the balances of God, not just of men, but in the balances of God, was a man who had no sin. He was more than innocent. He was sinless. And so we find a man who was not just unjustly, but sinfully arrested, and yet a man with the power to overpower those who came to arrest him, and yet he had a will that was constrained to be arrested because all his heart was to the glory and saving purpose of God. If ever there was a man with a right to look inglorious in his mugshot, it was Jesus So it's curious then that as we look at this arrested man, what we see is not so much an inglorious man, but inglorious men. 
while what we see of him is instead incredibly glorious and even arresting for our souls. And friends, honestly, I can't think of a greater need. I cannot think of a greater need than for you and I to be arrested by Jesus. I asked it a week ago, but are you captive to the glory of Christ? Are you captive to the glory of Christ? That is what we ought to be. But what we need to then grip us this morning is this, that it's precisely, it's precisely in these dark moments, it's precisely in the pit of our sins, it's precisely in what we call the crises of Christ, that His glory shines most radiantly for us. It's in the maltreatment of Jesus that we see the glory and grace of God our Savior. And so let's come to it in our text. And to this idea of coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus, but coming to Jesus in the dark. Starting in verse 1. Jesus has prepared His disciples for His departure. And uh, to continue that way, He now leads them into a garden where I can't help by, but be fascinated by the possibility uh, that Jesus is maybe the one here who leads sinners back into Eden, back into the presence of God, back into the sanctuary of God. Judas, we know, has been possessed by Satan previously in this gospel. He's been possessed by the serpent, and all of a sudden, here is the serpent crusher and the redeemer of rebels. It's just a thought, really. But what we know is that there was a garden, Gethsemane, that he and his disciples entered. And did so often enough that in Carrying out this demonic deed, Judas knew just where to go to find him. And so he comes to Jesus in the dark, leading a rebel mob with him as he goes. It's not usually a good sign of your spiritual condition to come to Jesus under the cover of night. It's often symptomatic of darkness in the soul, symptomatic of a person who's still bound to nature's night. In this case, it's really showing a blind man leading blind men. And this account is especially heartbreaking. You know why? Because this is a former disciple of Jesus, a false disciple of Jesus that now leads these rebels to him. But of course, not as he should lead rebels to Jesus, right? Not as one beggar showing other beggars where by the grace of God he found bread for his soul. Not like that. But as a betrayer showing other self-righteous wretches where to their shame they could arrest the bread giver as an imposter to the kingdom of God. So, Judas has only added to their innate blindness as runaways from Jesus, will always tend to do. So let's not be fooled here at the beginning of our passage. As Jesus has true disciples, you need to know this, as Jesus has true disciples, Satan has his mimics. 
As Jesus would invade Satan's kingdom, Satan has his pawns to try to frustrate and intersect and slow that unstoppable advance. He will do all that he can to try and bring the kingdom of Christ into disrepute and to bring Christ into disrepute along with it. And that is the great sin of a Judas. Beloved, our adversary has his own angels, and oftentimes they're disguised as emissaries of light. So, we need to be asking ourselves regularly, what really does separate? What does distinguish, set apart you and I as disciples of Jesus, people who really belong to Christ? If you sit on that for a while, you'll discover it's sometimes hard to say, isn't it? Just consider Judas then. It didn't matter, for instance, that he received ministry directly from Jesus. Or that he did ministry directly with Jesus for three years. It didn't matter that he heard the very best preaching. It did not matter that he observed in the flesh over three years at least a perfectly obedient life to God. It didn't matter that he participated in undeniable works of God with Jesus. He might have been a friend of Jesus, as the psalm says he was, but he never was a friend to Jesus. Or if he was, that's all he was. Right? He was never family to Jesus by virtue of a new birth. Judas was a zealot. That's what he was. He was a zealot. He had his own views of the Christ. He had his own causes. He had his own expectations for the Christ. He operated under this common framework of who the Christ should be, and Jesus did not meet it. And of all the opportunities God gave him to have Jesus reconfigure his thinking by the word of God so that he eventually came to see himself as the sinner in need above all of this Savior King, he never, Judas never came off of his prideful and unbiblical views of the Christ. He never let the word of God, either on the page or in the flesh, be determinative for his faith. His faith was fake. I want us to hear, friends, that the same fire, the same flame, the same heat that melts wax hardens clay. So that it seems Judas's perpetual exposure to Jesus, to his own fault, instead of melting his heart, only hardened his heart against him. What effect does the word of God have upon you? What effect repeated exposures to the Jesus of Scripture? What effect does the gospel truth as it is in Jesus have upon you? Does it melt you into its mold? Does it shape and fashion you after Christ? Does it work things like repentance from sin 
and faith in Him and refreshment of your heart and new, I don't know, streams of courage for Him. New boldness. Does it work love for God and for others? We need to be alert always to the activity of the Word in our hearts as well as the sensitivity of our hearts to His Word. Christ's people, remember this from John 10? The people of Jesus hear His voice and what? They follow Him. But Judas, however he fronts with a kiss, is officially aligned against Him. And so this place that was of sweetest assembly, again it's said that they gathered here frequently. Judas knew the place. This place that I imagine could only have been of the sweetest assembly for so long where Jesus has just kissed the cup of the cross. You know that prayer He prays. Not my will. Yours be done. Becomes a place of sinfulest arrest. This is how we desecrate the sanctuaries of Jesus. Let the serpent come into the garden without any thought of putting him under your foot. Bring all your idols in here. Bring all your opinions in here. Bring all your pride. Not, not so far as you're able to give a sincere ear, not to be taught by God to the contrary, not to be delivered, not to be melted, not to be edified, because that would mean bowing our hearts and changing our lives and rejoicing in God. No, I'd rather be established in my misery and in what I know, I think, to be the case. And then you lead others to Christ in that most terrible darkness. Let us ask ourselves, are we making any attempt at leading others to Jesus? And if so, how so? Or to what Jesus are we leading them? Are we leading them to the Christ revealed by the divine light of the Word of God, or are we leading them to a Christ that we've carved up in the recesses of our own darkened desires? What of Jesus are we displaying for the lost? What are they getting from us about Him? If we were to lead them to Him, how would they come? Would they come into verse 3 in our passage with lanterns and torches and weapons? Now to be fair, that's how we're all naturally inclined to approach Jesus anyway. Suspiciously, critically, fearfully, somewhat like Adam and Eve when God came to them after they'd sinned in the garden. Remember, they had lost the sense of their Savior so that they fled from Him as nothing but a graceless judge. But here, in this garden, to see just how far sin has a hold of us, they come out to the Savior, never minding their sin, to judge Him, the imposter there. And some of them, at least, are... Bible-hearing people, officers of the Pharisees, 
Some of them are Sabbath-observing people. Some of them are God-acknowledging people who nevertheless hold nothing true at all about the Christ. That's wild. What need have they of lanterns and torches and weapons but that they don't know God or His Christ? They expect Jesus to fight or to what? Take flight. And they're equipped then to hunt Him down or, if He fights, to duke it out with Him, to battle it out with Him, to find and take Him by force if need be. They have been led to that place astray. They've been led astray. They don't know that He came to seek and to save the lost. Them. They don't know that far from fighting or fleeing them, He came to beat their Lord. Sin, Satan, death, hell. He came to beat their Lord and then set them free from all of that. They don't know that. They've come to Christ in the dark. Now, starting in verse 4, I want you to see then how Jesus steps forward into that darkness to give His light. So, if you've come today, if you've come today and you're all on guard, all your spiritual senses are set on edge, grace to you. But I want you to lean in with us now. We might suppose that the ones who are holding the lights and the weapons are in control of the situation. That's not the case. It may appear that Jesus is the one who's brought a knife or nothing to a gunfight. But what they discover, as John records it for us, is that when it comes to Jesus, our weapons are both unnecessary and totally impotent. On the one hand, if you recall from another place in the Bible, a legion of demons, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, really strong angels, they beg at the feet of Jesus to be spared. <laughs> to be spared His power that's eventually going to come upon them at the day of judgment. Just give us a little while longer. Let us go into the pigs. And it says He permitted them. This is a man of great might and power. On the other hand, so long as it's called today, Jesus means no harm to the most fragile soul on earth. So in these verses, John tells us that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He knew who would betray him and how he would be betrayed and when. He knew all those things. And with that knowledge, just think now, with that knowledge, he could have taken another route. He could have gone to another place. He could have avoided this meeting entirely. Or he could have set and sprung a trap that was sure to overtake them if he was about the things that they thought he was about. But instead, he knows that this is just the next step. It's just part of God's plan that leads to the cross of our salvation. So that instead of fighting it, what does he do? 
He steps right into it. He submits to it. They don't need their lanterns. The light of the world, John 8, has no intention of running and hiding. He's the light. They don't need their weapons. It won't be against His will that they take Him, but according to His will that they take Him. And so you see in verse 4 that Jesus, instead of drawing back, running, fleeing, hiding, instead of doing those things, what does He do? He comes forward. He steps forward. He's not startled or shaken or rash or intimidated at all. Because He is the most powerful being in existence. He's the Word in charge. He's the divine Son owning God-given authority over all flesh. You'll remember that from John 17. And that now comes out in a really, really dynamic way. He speaks. He speaks. And in speaking, He reveals Himself. Something glorious of Himself. So He says to them, who do you see? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And He replies, I am he, which seems normal enough, except there's the aftershock once he's spoken that. Now, just before we go there, John would again have us reckon with a great tragedy. When Jesus answered, I am he, he answered, you'll see in the text, he answered them. Then, still verse 5, John notes this. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Them. So John is wanting us to see, if we haven't already, that there is no neutral ground before Jesus. There is no neutral ground before Jesus. You are either standing with Jesus or you are standing against Jesus. And if you decide to hunker down against Jesus, you best be ready to fall down before Jesus with the rest of the unbelieving world. Judas has picked his side. That's what he's saying. He's chosen to stand against Jesus so that the voice, listen now, the voice that he had heard for so long, the voice that lovingly, gently, and patiently ministered to him, knowing his heart. Now, that voice lands in a completely different way. To say it landed effectually still misses the mark a bit. It had landed effectually with those who loved him. But this is different. Here, the word of Christ lands terrifyingly. And by that, I'm not talking about how he says it. It's not about his tone. I imagine he said what he said rather normally. It was probably something like, I am he. What I'm talking about is, again, how it landed upon his enemies. In those words, something of His divine nature, something of His divine power, something of His divine presence, which sends unshielded sinners scattering, was effectually revealed to these unshielded folks. Right? How else to account for them? And what they do here? 
They have the weapons. All Jesus has is His voice. All He has is His words. But as they're His words, and as He steps forward to speak them, and as He thought it best to, at this point, unsheathe them, to give off a slight glance of His glorious omnipotence, letting them feel the cut of it in their very hearts. It's they, verse 6, who drew back and fall to the ground. Judas among them. One I read said, Hearing his word was for them then and there, like being struck by a thunderbolt. So there is, he said, no want of power in Christ. It was only as he permitted it that they had any wit or might at all to stand before him, much less go on to then bind and arrest him. Jesus is the Word who is in control of the situation. He is the Word who is in charge. And from it, we're to learn something really important. The Word of Christ is the most powerful, quote-unquote, weapon in existence. Nothing like it. None who abide his enemies can stand before it. And none who stand upon it will ever fall headlong. So we get a preview here of every day as well as the last day. It's easy for the lost to think themselves strong in the day of Christ's humiliation when he set his face like a flint to go to the cross. But let him give, let him give you just a feel of his glory and its terror. (laughs) Oh, if only we had a refuge. While his people stand in the same place, right beside them, secure in his grace. Secure in the cleft of that rock. Secure in Jesus. And that security is up next in our text. He's narrowed their search to himself for two reasons. Not just to assert his sovereignty over them, but to assert his sovereignty for his own. Do you see that? The word in charge is the Lord our shepherd. You see he doubles down on the question in verse 7. Some part of me wonders if he has to do this to advance the events. In other words, I wonder if this verbal theophany is what it is, a display of his glory. This verbal theophany has left them rather shocked and frozen to the point that only this further word, this next word of his, can sort of snap snap them out of their spiritual paralysis. (laughs) They're like this. So it's almost like he's saying, let's go, boys. Wake up. Snap out of it. You have an arrest you shouldn't want to make. But for his part, he leaves no suspense as to why he's saying it again. They again identify him. And so he says, verse 8, I told you that I am he. So, here it is, if you seek me, what? Let my guys go. Let these men go. And John then narrates for us, verse 9, 
This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So, what we have here is an earthly application of a gospel promise. A carrying out of Christ's word. And do note that. John speaks of a single sentence of Jesus as he does elsewhere of the word of God, of Scripture. Dear ones, no promise of Jesus, I want you to hear, no promise of Jesus to us will ever be left unfulfilled. We can confidently collapse our whole souls upon Him. Our Savior is a rock. And so too is His Word. But let's just isolate the truth here. Isn't the truth that he's trying to get at here, just this, that as Jesus is for us, who can stand against us? Now, we need to be careful. What we see in these verses is not that Jesus will always deliver us from persecution on account of him. All these men were persecuted for decades. And all of them except for John went on to lose their lives for the sake of Jesus. They were martyred. Okay? It also doesn't mean that we will always have courage to stand fast for Jesus. I know it's not in this account of it, but if you go to Matthew's gospel, if you go to Mark's gospel, what do the disciples do at this point? We've got to get out of Dodge. We've got to flee. We've got to disassociate from Jesus. And so they, they go. They run away. And they leave him to suffer alone. That's what they do here. So, if it's not that we will always be spared persecution, if it's not that we'll always take courage to stand fast in the heat of persecution, what is meant here? What's that? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me to comfort me, to establish me in mercy, and to bring me all the way home victorious. It's Paul, last words that he writes to the world, saying, all my brothers and sisters in Christ have abandoned me. But, what? The Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me. And that was all my strength to make it all the way to glory. It's that when we're surrounded by enemies and all their weapons on every side, Christ can, He can deliver us from harm. But even if He doesn't, he will guard and sustain our souls so that our souls, at least, will be kept alive always. As with our Lord, it may be granted for men to kill our bodies. But never will a soul united to the risen Christ be allowed to suffer eternal separation from Him. He lives forever to hold us fast. 
of those whom you gave me, Father, I have lost, pause, not one. If Christ has found you, he cannot lose you. You cannot be lost. And how emboldening should that be for us? Why do we flee Him? And why won't you flee Him? Why do we disassociate from Jesus under pressure? And why won't you do that? Why do we cave on the Word of God? And why won't you do that? Why do we fear Satan's warriors? And why won't you do that? Why won't we be a fool for Jesus? And why will you be a fool for Jesus? Because He's made you a promise. And His Word is true. And therefore, it is completely, totally trustworthy. The Lord is our shepherd. He's the Word in charge. And He said, None of mine left behind. Not one lost. Every single one of my own They're all coming home. All of them. And just there, we're to take courage on behalf of the kingdom and glory of Christ, only not like Peter does. Apparently, their coming to Christ, hand to the hilt, was not entirely without merit. It just had to do with a disciple of Jesus. Rather, than Jesus Himself. And isn't that a shame? Isn't that a shame? And far too often the case. Having seen Christ's ability to defend Himself and having heard His protection of His own, Peter is not satisfied. In for a penny, in for a pound. Malchus, I'm going to need that ear. But what if what God offers to sinners like Peter costs less than a penny to the sinner? What if it's absolutely free to us? What if we're gripped by the gracious character of saving grace? Might that change how you and I relate to our enemies? You see, Peter, in raising his sword against Malchus in verse 10, has fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God, what today Jesus is all about. There is more Judas in Peter than Peter dares admit. And perhaps that lob will usefully take out a few of us with it. There's nothing wrong at all with Peter's being zealous for Jesus. The problem is in how Peter expresses his zealousness for Jesus. It's in the expression. It's all wrong. Now, if you're here this morning and you are unbelieving, again, grace to you, and I have breaking news for you, Jesus 
will always be better than his people. Always. Try as we might to know him and faithfully show him and trying should count in all of that. It will be ugly sometimes. But let's all just see here for a moment that even Peter's violent blunder is a thing that Jesus himself reproves and then corrects. The reflection is gross. It was completely counterintuitive to who Jesus is. It was straight against the message of the cross. No doubt Malchus had a now painful reason to think, well listen, if that is what the disciples are all about, there's nothing more to consider about their Lord. But friend, just wait, just wait. And see Jesus being the Lord and Savior of both Malchus and Peter alike. I know it can be hard to see through the disciples of Jesus. I know that it can be hard to see through the church. But the Word-centered church is, after all, the looking glass that Jesus has left you for seeing Him. What I mean is, A church who majors on truth and grace. A church that is honest about our ugliness. A church that repents of our waywardness from Jesus. And thus lives to open the book as here. And then point you to the perfect reflection. The perfect revelation of Christ. As we have it in the Bible. Again, if you're unbelieving or believing, let's be arrested by him. Do we hear what he says to Peter? Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And we know, by the way, from Luke's gospel, that it's right then and there that Jesus moves toward Malchus. And what does he do? He touches the side of his head, and he restores his ear, puts it back. So Christ is not about taking life. He's about laying his life down in order that you might have it eternally. He sheathes the swords of men to fully sharpen and wield the heart-cutting scalpel of the gospel. Peter, put your weapon away. I have a cross to bear, and there upon that cross I have a cup to drink that if any enemy of mine has an ear to hear, they will find grace sufficient to save them from their sins. And so will you. Having said that, church, we do need to reflect Jesus well. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is that what you and I show? Are we graceful? Are we tender? Are we inviting as Jesus wants us to be? 
Or are we striking and are we combative? Listen, it is gorgeous. There is nothing you'll never hear. Listen, it is gorgeous to be zealous. I can't see anybody, sorry. It is gorgeous to be zealous for Jesus. Gorgeous. So long as it's tempered by His gentle and lowly heart. Maybe some of us might say, well, listen, we need to stand up and we need to defend Jesus. No, we don't. Does it look like he needed Peter's defense? No. As Charles Spurgeon once said, this lamb is also the lion. And the lion he is needs no defense. What do you do with a lion? You don't have to defend the lion. You just let the lion out, and the lion will defend himself. You want to honor Jesus? You want to see his glory march on in the world? Just reflect the lion faithfully. Just reflect him faithfully. Unsheathe his sword. Share his truth, and do it tenderly. Do it in love for souls. Showcase his grace to the graceless. Jesus will take care of his glory. defend himself. We need to move on. They've come to him in the dark. He's stepped forward and given his light. He's the word in charge. He's the Lord our shepherd. He's the Lamb of God. And to that end, if you look at verses 12 and 14, Jesus is now arrested to be even more arresting. There are some stupendous things in the flow of this text. It is unreal how hard the human heart can be. Unreal. So one said that even oxen and donkeys feel something when they fall. But these men harder than beasts, and Judas among them, after falling under the weight of Christ's verbalized glory, feel nothing more. The impression is lost quickly as it came. They're unmoved, except that they go on as planned, unarrested by His glory. They move against Him as a person might move against a fly. He's still and only an imposter to them. And he goes with them as such, willingly. And that is the peculiar beauty of the sufferings of Christ. We know, we know, he can't really be bound unless he wants to be. He can't really be arrested unless he wills to be arrested. He could speak and just send them to the ground, scattering. We've already seen it in the passage. He could do that again right here. But instead, he goes silent. He goes to be tried and judged by men, though all men are subject to his judgment seat 
And he submits to that. He knows what awaits him just in front of this. And worst of all is not the injustice, perhaps, of some of these soldiers. It's not the injustice of Annas or Caiaphas. It's not the injustice of you or me. It's infinitely worse. Just in front of him is facing, is suffering the awful, not injustice, the awful justice of God for sinners like us. And yet, He grants being bound. He grants being arrested. He grants being tried and judged unjustly because it was the will of God to crush him. Because it was the will of God to bring sinners under the saving influence of Jesus. It was that Jesus would arrest us. It's that we'd be taken captive by him. You see Caiaphas in verse 14 as we close. He had it all wrong, though he said the right thing. He said it would be helpful for Jesus to die, to spare the people from the influence of Jesus. And God said, checkmate. As you wish, but not as you thought. Not as you planned it, Caiaphas, but as I planned it. Not to spare the people from Jesus, but through Jesus to spare them my wrath. To save them from their sins. To reconcile my enemies to myself. To cleanse their hearts. To capture their souls. To make them my very own people was ever a mugshot like this. It is the glory of Christ to suffer like this. To be bound to unbind us. To be arrested to arrest us. To be condemned in our place to justify us before God. To die for us that you and I might live to God forever and ever Amen. A friend, whom do you seek in this sanctuary? If it's Jesus, here he is in his arresting glory. You've heard his mighty word. And perhaps his mighty word has stunned you. Maybe it stunned you just a little bit. My counsel would be, don't let that wear off so quickly. It's meant to drive you to Him. Not away from Him, but to Him. To find grace to save you from your sins. Only may He give you an ear to hear. Only may He give you a heart that cannot but believe in Him. And therefore be saved. Beloved, let me ask us a question. Have we been running more free with or free from Jesus? More free with or more free from Jesus? Doing our own thing, incubating our sin instead of killing it, paying His word 
not much mind, reflecting him very poorly, misrepresenting his heart, living in fear, missing the gospel entirely. Today is a day for you to be arrested by Jesus again. Oh, had I a thousand lives, said George Whitfield back in the 1700s. Oh, had I a thousand lives, my dear Lord Jesus should have them all. Should. But does he? Should. But does he? Let's take it to prayer. Oh Lord, please pour out your Holy Spirit, upon the preaching of your holy word, upon the preaching of your saving gospel, upon the preaching of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Grant anyone who has come in this morning unbelieving, grant them to leave believing with peace with God thrilling their souls. And for every Christian, I do pray, Lord, that we would just be all the more captive to you, to your glory, and to the advance of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.